When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's been described as Japan's Chernobyl. And while the disaster at Fukushima was certainly different, they both have a lot more similarities than you might think. The story of unsung elderly heroes risking their lives for their younger countrymen, neglect that many argue crosses the line into criminality, and an eerie silence from those in charge. Fukushima is making headlines again for a recent earthquake, leaving the world watching, scared that history will sometime soon repeat itself. Hello, and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Fukushima. Not the town itself, by the way, we're gonna be talking about the incidents that occurred around Fukushima. Not only have there been concerns about the stability of the area since the recent quake, but the lasting effects of the 2011 disaster are still felt. South Korea still has a ban in place on the fish there, and the UN is currently reviewing the possibility of dumping nuclear wastewater into the ocean. So how did we even get here? Well, let's get into it. It was 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011, when a 9.0 magnitude earthquake struck off the east coast of Honshu, Japan's main island. Japan is located along the Ring of Fire where tectonic plates beneath the Earth's crust move and shift, leading to earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Earthquakes are so common in Japan that their buildings are earthquake resistant and they hold earthquake drills in schools regularly as often as once a month. Awareness, TV coverage, and preparedness are hugely important. So on March 11th, these preventative measures saved many lives. The earthquake sensors in Japan's bullet trains or Shinkansen meant that their trains automatically shut down after being triggered by smaller prequakes before the larger 9.01 and no train related deaths or injuries took place. However, this earthquake was the strongest one Japan had ever experienced since record keeping began in the late 19th century. And these quakes triggered a massive subsequent tsunami. The waves in Japan were over 30 feet tall when they hit the mainland and some managed to make their way six miles inland. Even waves in Hawaii were 12 feet tall as a result. The devastation was indescribable. More than 360,000 people were displaced from their homes within the first week and 20,000 people were missing or presumed dead. In June, that number rose to almost 30,000, but by the end of the year, the official death toll was about 19,300 as many of the missing people were accounted for. Nearly all of the deaths were because of the tsunami and many of those displaced were crowded into shelters. Some of them went without electricity or water while rescuers continued to find people on the roofs of schools and hospitals. Vasily V. Tidov, director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Center for Tsunami Research said the coastal areas had about 15 to 30 minutes before it hit and stated, 
In Japan, the public is among the best educated in the world about earthquakes and tsunamis, but it's still not enough time. The flat terrain made it harder for people to reach higher, safer ground. While citizens scrambled to find safety, family members, and shelter, horrifying events were still unfolding at the coast. Another disaster of different epic proportions was about to take place. The Fukushima nuclear power plant located right on Japan's Eastern Pacific coast was easily exposed to the tsunami. They had been prepared for the earthquake as reactors one, two, and three had automatically shut down from the tremors. The others, four, five, and six were not in use at the time. In order to cool the plant, Fukushima used backup generators. However, their 19 foot tall seawalls were unable to protect against the initial 40 foot wave that devastated the area. Atomic Archive says that one of the waves that broke through was 46 feet tall, which disabled all but one of the underground generators. It's a bit tricky to fully explain what happened unless you understand how steam powered reactors work, such as those used at the plant. But I will try my best to give you a basic summary and rundown. So in essence, once the power was completely gone and the generators inoperable, the cooling systems failed in reactors one, two, and three. This led to the cores overheating, causing meltdown of the fuel rods. As Britannica explains, melted material fell to the bottom of the containment vessels in reactors one and two and burned sizable holes through the floor of each vessel, which partially exposed the nuclear material in the cores. Plus, if the cooling systems weren't working, this meant that the water level dropped and fuel rods were exposed to the air, creating hydrogen gases. When hydrogen mixes with oxygen, you can end up with hydrogen explosions. So to put it as simply as possible, the cores are really hot, water pumps to cool them were not working because there was no power, so the insight was just melting itself and causing a literal fiery hell. All this spelled disaster for Fukushima. It meant the potential for explosions and radiation exposure. But with the power out and the area flooding, it wasn't exactly the best condition to even try and fix anything. About four hours after the earthquake took place, a crew went to the fourth floor of the Unit 1 building. Their off-the-scale radiation levels signaled that at this point, the core of Unit 1 was exposed and fuel rods were ruptured. About an hour later, a nuclear emergency was declared and soon after, the government issued evacuation orders for anyone living in about two miles of the power plant. Meanwhile, at the plant itself, the workers still had no functioning instruments to determine what was actually happening inside the reactor cores. So they made do with what they had car batteries. All of us who had a car or a company car were asked to get the batteries to try to restore power. Just before midnight, they were able to get some vital monitoring systems running again. And once they saw the levels of the pressure gauge, they panicked. One former worker that chose to remain anonymous told PBS Frontline that quote, the pressure was going up and up. Everyone thought, isn't this dangerous? Are we in trouble? With that much pressure building, those responsible for the plant at the Tokyo Electric Power Company known as TEPCO knew they had to take some action. They basically only had two options. One was to do nothing and risk an explosion that would be absolutely devastating and release a ton of radiation into the atmosphere. The second option was to slowly release some of that hydrogen into the air as safely as possible in an attempt to alleviate the pressure. TEPCO needed the prime minister's permission to do this, but he did give them the go ahead. However, PBS makes the important point here that TEPCO was withholding information from the prime minister. No one at the plant actually knew how to vent reactors without electricity. As the anonymous worker explained, the venting valves are driven by motors. So while it's possible to do it manually, it's incredibly difficult, let alone while still in the dark. Still radiation was rising, so there wasn't much of an option. The workers realized that nuclear meltdown had begun and the fuel was melting given the readings that they were getting in the plant at the time. 
After a few hours had passed, the workers were still trying to work out a way to safely vent the reactors, but the prime minister, not having received any updates and concerned about the situation, decided to fly out to Fukushima himself to determine what was going on. He arrived around 6 a.m. on March 12th, the day after the quake. And I want to interrupt for just a moment and state that the next several minutes will mention loss of life and suicide. While there are minimal details, please feel free to skip ahead to the next chapter if this is gonna be too difficult for you to hear at the moment. Now, these workers were genuinely trying. This was just something they've never done before. Plus, there was a matter of the citizens nearby. I was told three of my family were missing. I felt cold, like my blood was being drained. Norio's father was missing. So was his wife and his youngest daughter, Yuna. I just couldn't accept that the tsunami might have killed them. Even though the order for evacuation had been issued, many were not even leaving as they were desperate to find their loved ones. At about 10 a.m., they were finally able to vent some steam from unit one, and an hour later, they did the same for unit two. Unfortunately, it was not enough to prevent a hydrogen explosion. At 3.36 p.m. local time, the roof was completely blown off Unit 1. Four workers were injured and electric cables meant to restore power and fire hoses to deliver coolant were both damaged. Now, to this day, articles say that Japan's cautious approach to venting may have actually contributed to this explosion. From what I've seen, yes, Japan was cautious about releasing radiation and the prime minister carefully weighed this decision. However, he also showed up at Fukushima a few hours after the order came down, angry that it had not been done yet. Therefore, I don't think it was the approach that caused the venting delays, but the fact that it had to be done manually and citizens still needed to be evacuated. Now, that's of course just my opinion based on the sources I've reviewed through and what the prime minister himself said in the documentary. After the explosion, the evacuation area was expanded to about a 12 mile radius. And this is another difficult and controversial point that we'll get to in just a moment. TEPCO began injecting seawater into Unit 1 as a substitute coolant that evening, but unlike fresh water, it irreparably corroded pumps and pipelines. History.com called it the death knell to Reactor 1, while at about this time, the Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency also began detecting harmful radiation levels of cesium-137 and iodine-131 near the plant. And both of these are produced by nuclear fission. So while a small amount of cesium is in the air, we breathe every day because of weapons testing in large forms, however, it can cause burns, acute radiation sickness, and even death. Iodine affects the thyroid gland and exposure to significant amounts of it can potentially cause thyroid cancer. But the following day, there wasn't much improvement. The cooling system in reactor three failed on the morning of March 13th and TEPCO started using seawater in unit two and three that night as well. A team of soldiers were ordered to the site to try and inject water into reactor three and prevent an explosion. The team had suits to protect against radioactive materials, though not gamma rays, but they were unfortunately too late. At 11.01 AM on March 14th, there was yet another hydrogen explosion at unit three and 11 workers were injured. All the while, the crisis seemed to be played down by the government, such as the chief cabinet secretary, who said that they saw no damage to the contaminant vessels at Fukushima. The public knew of the explosions, they wanted answers, but the government seemed to have none. Yet the severity of the disaster was raised on the International Nuclear and Radiological Event Scale. It was about 5.07 out of the time. But things only got worse. It was thought that another explosion took place, this time in reactor two, though thankfully that was not the case. 
A fire did break out at unit four though, and radiation levels at the plant were fluctuating drastically. Some levels were so high that if someone were exposed to them for only an hour, radiation sickness would set in. A few hours at those levels meant death. PBS Frontline shows footage of the control room, and as one worker says, the workers were saying we were finished. In the control room, people were saying we were finished. They were saying it quietly, but they were saying it. We felt we had to flee. This was the end. About a week after the disaster began, the prime minister also ordered helicopters to dump water on the fuel pools from the air, but this wasn't particularly effective either. Even though the first load of water did meet its target, it was too windy to aim properly. Ultimately, the radiation levels did not change because of this. Parts of the plant were shut down without power and multiple explosions had already taken place. Workers desperately wanted to get out and so TEPCO planned to withdraw. The prime minister said he believed withdrawal was out of the question and that would leave the reactors abandoned and surely cause meltdowns worse than even Chernobyl. In the 2012 PBS documentary, the prime minister claims, I said, this is a very tough decision, but you cannot abandon the plant. The fate of Japan hangs in the balance. All those over 60 should be prepared to lead the way in a dangerous place. Otherwise, we are handing Japan over to an invisible enemy. This would affect not just Japan, but the whole world. TEPCO seniors say they never planned a full withdrawal, but they just wanted to evacuate some of the workers most at risk. Soon after, only a skeleton crew known as the Fukushima 50 were left. Many of these older workers that agreed to protect the younger crew have remained anonymous as they fear retaliation or backlash. And you might be wondering, why would they receive backlash in the first place? But rest assured, we will get to that in a moment too. Without a doubt though, these workers that agreed to stay are the heroes of this disaster in the same way that Chernobyl divers and firefighters were heroes. One of them who, I will try my best to pronounce his name, Atsufumi Yashizawa, has stepped forward and spoken out about his experience. He was 54 at the time of the incident and says that at no point was anyone forced to stay, yet he never thought about leaving. I had to stay and get a grip on the situation. I wasn't thinking about my family, only about the other workers and how worried they must have been about their own families. Those of us who remained knew that we would be there until the end. We knew that we were the only people capable of saving the plant. Our determination surpassed all other considerations, he stated. He added that he, as well as the other men, felt like members of the Takatai or Kamikaze pilots of World War II. The first two weeks, the workers were given one 500 milliliter or about two cups of water and told they had to make it last for two days. Even so, they didn't panic. The Fukushima 50 remained in protective clothing for long shifts for weeks on end. They ate biscuits and dried food, slept on the floor, and given the after effects of the tsunami, couldn't be delivered emergency or vital supplies either. Fukushima unfortunately could not catch a break either. If you know anything about earthquakes, you'll know that one earthquake can often be followed by more or aftershocks. Exactly one month after the first one on April 11th, another earthquake with a magnitude 7.0 rocked Eastern Japan, once more leading to a power outage. Once again, this meant cooling water couldn't reach the reactors. And the very next day, the International Atomic Energy Agency rated the Fukushima crisis as a seven, the highest or worst possible rating ever. The Fukushima 50 remained there until December, about nine months before the reactors were declared stable. This was also the same month that TEPCO even admitted some fault in the disaster and reports found that over 1300 tons of contaminated water were found in the groundwater near the reactors. It took another two years before fuel rods started to be removed from unit four, though the fuel rods from reactors one and two are not expected to be removed until next year. 
There's a lot more that could be said about the lacking or absent safety measures, but we do need to move on. If you want to read on about it in like a lot more detail, the entire 500 page report will be available in my sources. Now, as you can imagine, the fallout from all of this has been massive. How wasn't this prevented? Why wouldn't a nuclear power plant built on a coast be more prepared for something like a tsunami? Well, when we return from this ad break, we're gonna take a look at how this happened in the first place and the fallout from this disaster. Online shopping isn't slowing down anytime soon. So is your business ready to keep up the pace? With ShipStation, you'll never have to worry about shipping again. Make the switch to a solution that handles all your shipping needs quickly, affordably, and painlessly. And ShipStation is already trusted by over 100,000 other e-commerce sellers. So you know that it's good. I really like these super discounted rates that it gives me. It allows me to ship a lot more things, a lot more affordably, which obviously saves money for everybody. Sometimes shipping can be an absolute pain in the butt. So it's nice when it's all synced and in one easy solution that's quick to use, easy to learn how to use it, and then saves you money on top of it. So if you wanna get started to ship more in less time using ShipStation, make sure you use my offer code casket to get a 60 day free trial. That's two months free of no hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in the word casket. ShipStation.com, use promo code casket. And speaking of saving money, for most of us, the idea of getting financially healthy means dropping the weight of credit card debt. But where do you start when it feels like a never-ending cycle? Well, that's where Upstart comes in because Upstart can help you pay off your existing debt quickly and easily with a personal loan so you can start living your best life. And it doesn't matter if you're paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debts, or funding personal expenses. There's over a million people who've used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date and no surprises. And Upstart knows you're more than just a credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided to find you a smarter rate for your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com casket. That's upstart.com casket. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Again, that's upstart.com casket. The entire disaster at Fukushima has been extremely controversial with many debating the speed and aggression with which the government acted. Let's answer the first big question. Could this have been prevented? The answer is a resounding absolutely yes, according to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. According to their article, TEPCO and their regulator, NISA, neglected to follow standards. And it's not as if power plant flooding is new. Back in 1999, when Blea nuclear power plant in France experienced flooding, many plants in Europe started upgrading their defenses. However, TEPCO, in a country known for earthquakes and tsunamis, failed to actually upgrade Fukushima in the same way. TEPCO did upgrade their tsunami walls from 3.1 to 5.7 meters, about 10 feet to 19 feet voluntarily in 2002, but it just wasn't enough. Not only did TEPCO seemingly fail to account for runups when tsunami waves are pushed into the shore above the sea level, but an official methodology for tsunami safety was explicitly mentioned for the first time in 2006, five years before the incident. Then again, in 2008, TEPCO made trial calculations of maximum wave heights and learned that their recent calculations were significantly higher than those in previous years with a 10.2 meter discrepancy. 
they were actually able to make these calculations using the Jogan tsunami of 869 AD, which took place in Eastern Japan. Still, TEPCO didn't act because according to them, there was no record of magnitude eight level earthquakes off the coast of Fukushima. Government agencies did not consider a large tsunami source to be present and the source of the Jogan tsunami was never determined. Now these warnings kept coming too. Once more in 2009, they were told by a government committee of scientists that the defenses at Fukushima were inadequate, but as the PBS documentary explains, TEPCO was supposedly still reviewing the material when the very incident occurred. Now, I understand that building a new seawall will take some time, but to be still reviewing just the warning material after two years, especially when we're talking about a nuclear power plant, it just seems really ridiculous, let alone all the previous warnings they had before. Additionally, it's so frustrating that this government committee refused or didn't wanna take action. It's, It's just, it's unsettling, I think is the best way to put it. If a company can't or won't comply with basic safety regulations, regardless of industry, then they need to be heavily fined and threatened with shutdowns. Now, granted, I don't know exactly what was said in the meetings, but still just saying, oh, you know, you should have probably made that seawall higher just doesn't seem like that's enough. Now, as negligent as that all might sound, Japan's regulators themselves seem wildly unprepared for tsunami risk too. Their basic guidelines known as the Regulatory Guide for Reviewing Safety Design of Light Water Nuclear Power Reactor Facilities didn't even mention tsunami safety when this incident occurred. According to the CEIP, the issue of tsunamis is captured only by a catch-all clause about ensuring safety in the event of other postulated natural phenomena than an earthquake. Unfortunately, many disaster preventative measures are taken after disaster strike, after we learn from our mistakes. Chibu Electric Company in Japan started taking tsunami protective measures a month after the incident, and research has shown that other power stations have learned from Fukushima's mistakes. While some plants like the Onagawa plant are said to have a good design for earthquake and tsunami hazards, it took for this incident to show Japan that they needed to set a precedent for tsunamis in general. Of course, the lack of preventative measures were far from the only things criticized here. For example, the evacuation. On one hand, perhaps the evacuation radius should have been larger to be extra precautious about radiation exposure. After all, Americans were advised to stay 50 miles away from Fukushima, not 12. We were taking radiation measurements ourselves to see after the drop, did the radiation level go down? Uh, And it didn't. But on the other hand, the Financial Times has questioned if the evacuation actually raised the death toll because of the ensuing chaos. Their article stated that 2,202 deaths occurred from evacuation stress, interruption to medical care, and suicide. Yet as of this article's publication in 2018, there have been no cancer deaths linked to radiation. Philip Thomas, a professor of risk management at the University of Bristol and leader of a research project on nuclear accidents even went so far as to claim the following. With hindsight, we can say the evacuation was a mistake. We would have recommended that nobody was evacuated. But on the other hand, and yes, if you're counting, that's three hands today. In 2022, approximately 300 people have been diagnosed with or suspected of having thyroid cancer with 266 of them found as part of the Fukushima Prefectural Panel Survey of some 380,000 residents. But what does that mean? Let's break it down. The natural occurrence rate without radiation playing a factor is one to two people per 1 million. But for those around Fukushima, the rate is around 77 per 100,000. And my math might be off here, but if we're gonna calculate that and make it so it's per million, so we look at that one to two people per million for the natural occurrence, that would be 7,700 people per million in the Fukushima area. 
other experts have called for an end to the blanket surgery and say that there's an overdiagnosis in many of these cases, while lawyers have argued that their client's cancer hasn't been overdiagnosed and TEPCO needs to be held accountable. So in case you can't tell, the situation is complicated with different sides being presented more and more as the long-term consequences begin to develop. All in all, this feels like a lose-lose situation. Had the area not been evacuated, more people would actually be alive, but perhaps many more would have cancer. But one thing has been agreed upon, generally speaking, the lack of transparency and preventative action. This is one thing the prime minister has been especially criticized for, though not everyone agrees he deserved the hatred he got for his handling of the crisis. In April, 2011, Prime Minister Khan's approval rating was at just 27%, which while that's extremely low, was still higher than his abysmal rating of just 21% before the Fukushima disaster. As he visited disaster zones, however, critics began to speak up. Shinichi Suzuki, a deputy mayor of the town of Nahara, said that he didn't think the government is making enough of an effort. Many people are still living in a gymnasium without any privacy more than a month after the evacuation. The government should have built more temporary housing. Food is also a problem. There are many elderly among the evacuees. Japanese media continued to report that the government was doing all that it could, but lawmakers and local leaders accused them of sending mixed signals by saying that the reactors were stabilizing one minute, then expanding the evacuation radius the next. The Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution said that the first official radiation contamination map wasn't even released until seven months after the crisis took place. With such a lack of information, rumors were able to circulate. Asby Brown is the lead researcher for SafeCast, an environmental monitoring group, and they explained it as such. Trust is not a renewable source. Once you lose it, you may never get it back. By the end of April, it was clear that the public had largely lost faith in Prime Minister Khan. Though he claimed to have done everything he had to do, the criticism of the slow reconstruction effort and his response to Fukushima proved too much, and so he resigned. September that year, many of the 80,000 evacuees were still living in shelters with no indication of when they could go home. It wasn't until February, almost a year after the disaster, that one of the nine evacuated municipalities announced their coming plans to reopen. The Japanese courts wanted justice and they weren't about to tolerate any excuses from TEPCO or the government. In September, 2020, they determined that TEPCO and the Japanese government were both responsible for failing to take measures to prevent the 2011 nuclear disaster and they were ordered to pay 1 billion yen to thousands of residents. And although that sounds like a slamming amount of money, it was only a fraction of the 28 billion yen that they were actually seeking. And to add insult to injury, this was only about 9.5 million USD when the article was written. So that means that residents are getting just very little compensation compared to how much they actually suffered and lost. The government argued it was impossible to predict the tsunami, even if no one can see the future, but it still doesn't seem like TEPCO and their regulators even tried to prepare for it. When reflecting on the topic years later, Khan has maintained that, quote, rather than overstepping what is permitted by law, I pushed the laws to its limit, doing everything that I was legally allowed to do to save Japan. I did everything in my power I can do legally, but I pushed the legal boundaries. Fukushima remains a volatile topic to this very day. In 2017, Japan's reconstruction minister, whose name I am going to try my best to say, Masayoshi Imamura, resigned after making some extremely insensitive remarks about the disaster. According to the Guardian, he stated that it was better the disaster struck the Northeast than Tokyo at a party for liberal democratic party lawmakers. Weeks later, he'd also disparaged people who left Fukushima out of fear and shouted at a reporter. So 
That doesn't seem like the best person to handle the reconstruction of a disaster zone, just saying. Yet what I personally find to be one of the strangest controversies out of all of this is the fact that the Fukushima 50 aren't actually seen as heroes. Although there aren't technically 50 of them per se, this skeleton crew faces discrimination in Japan. They've often been seen as the cause and Dr. Jun Shigamura at Japan's National Defense University told the BBC that some of the workers have been turned down for renting apartments. Some have had plastic bottles thrown at them or even papers pinned to their doors saying, get out TEPCO. Japan's history with nuclear power given the bombs in World War II has always been dicey to put it lightly. Time and time again, the public has been promised that nuclear power is safe in order for them to accept the plants. As the BBC puts it, now that the lie has been so tragically exposed, the feeling of betrayal is huge. The Fukushima 50 are seen as the face and names of TEPCO, even though they risk their very lives to protect their country. But why does this matter all today? Why are we even talking about Fukushima right now? Well, there's actually a few reasons. For one, a UN nuclear task force has launched a review about Japan's plan to dump contaminated water into the ocean. Local fishers and even neighboring counties have strongly opposed this, but TEPCO insists that it's able to remove all radioactive materials from the water except for tritium. And since they say tritium is harmless in small amounts, they believe that the seawater will dilute it. Even so, the longstanding ban on Fukushima seafood, which still remains in effect in South Korea to this day, proves that the fear around Fukushima's radioactivity is alive and well. Only two single fish out of the thousands that have been tested since 2015 have exceeded radioactive levels according to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. While TEPCO has said this won't be a problem, it's understandable why the public may not be able to really fully trust them. Fukushima has also made headlines very recently, like literally last week. On Wednesday, March 16th at 11.36 p.m., a 7.4 magnitude earthquake hit the Fukushima region of Japan. Four people have died as a result and about 200 were injured. Though I do want to note that at the time that we wrote this, it was just a few days after the report was released. So this number might change upon publication. Thankfully, only small tsunami waves of about eight inches have been reported, though waves of about three feet were anticipated at the time. The quake and tsunami warnings have reminded many in the region of the devastation that took place a few years ago. With a 7.4 magnitude earthquake, this quake could have done a lot more damage. Back in 1995, a similar quake to this one, Kobe, killed over 6,000 people. The New York Times reports that the only real difference between Kobe and the recent quake is the depth beneath the sea. As for Fukushima, a fire alarm went off in the building of reactor five, despite there being no fire and two water pumps briefly stopped. The Japan Times also reported no abnormalities at the plant, although the community was still shaken. After all, this quake occurred less than a week after the 11th anniversary of the disaster. So it was still fresh in people's minds too. Right now, Japan, especially Fukushima seems quite on edge, just waiting for the next disaster to strike. One can only hope that this time, those involved will be better prepared. But with all that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you did enjoy this episode, learn something new from it, whatever the case might be, are curious about more, I've also done episodes on Chernobyl, the Bhopal gas tragedy, and Three Mile Island. So feel free to check those out as well. And finally, of course, I also want to thank all of my lovely patrons over at patreon.com slash Illuminati. Thank you so much for supporting the show. You guys are all fantastic. I love chatting with every single one of you and I look forward to many more movie nights. 
let me know for those of you listening right now, what movie are we gonna be watching next? As for everyone else, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I appreciate you spending some of your time here with me today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.